Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, we'll be talking about body image in India. But before we get to anything, can we just take a moment to bask in our new music? Yes, please. It's amazing. So, yes, let's talk about it a bit more. We love it so much. Talk about a Christmas gift. It was literally made a few days ago and we were going to save it to our January episode, you know, New Year, new podcast. Uh, But we are too excited and we're not about delayed gratification on this podcast. Especially not in 2020. It's been a rough old year. No, we need the good things in the moment. And the timing is actually pretty perfect because it was the podcast's fifth birthday last month. Um, So we're kind of set up now for the next five years, aren't we, Nadia? Totally, though. My goodness, can you imagine? Do you think we're going to be doing this in five years' time? Mm, this, this is a big question. I can't think that far ahead. I have a PhD to complete first. <laughs> <laughs> Just that small, small thing. Oh, you know, that little thing, yeah. Um. Anyway, Nadia, do you want to talk more about who made the music? Yes, I really do. It was made by one of my old school friends, Sean Evans, and her colleague, John Landau. Sean is a senior producer, and John is a musician and sound engineer. Honestly, it was so lovely. And when you were sending me little WhatsApp clips of it in, in the pipeline, as it was hot off the press being created, I was like, so much talent, so great. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of your old school friends, wasn't it, who did the, the previous music? Yes, kind of. So our old music was Made in a Flash by an old friend, David Insacal, back in October 2015. But I went to an all-girls school, so David wasn't at my school, but we were in a couple of music ensembles and orchestras together during our school, secondary school period. He's a very talented percussionist and he is based in Bristol. But I did go to school with Sean. We were in music classes together and Sean, I don't know if you had this in your school, Jade, but Sean was the, the singer of our year. So there's lots of people who are good at singing, but you have like a standout. And like in my mind, when I think back to school and Sean at school, Sean was the singer. No, we yeah. didn't. But that's an interesting idea. I wonder if that's independent for your schools or if that's broader. But no, we had good singers. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know. That might not be popular with everyone in my, my year group at school. But that's that's how I remember Sean. Put it that way. She also um, played the piano. And then she went on to do music and music production at university. So she was absolutely the perfect person to do this music for us. I mean, honestly, so many talented musical friends that you have, Nadia. Truly. A huge, huge thank you to Sean and John for making us sound so good. And we've put a link in the show notes in case you want some gorgeous original bespoke music. Yes, and it is gorgeous indeed. And on that note, I think we should get on with this podcast episode and our last one of 2020. I appreciate, Nadia, that you have made some effort with a little festivity in your gorgeous Christmassy style blouse. And um, we've got some festive mugs as well, haven't we? We have, we have. Although we're doing it on Zoom where all the effort is being put in. Cheers. I can see that you've got your Christmas hat on. I don't own a Christmas hat. I remember when we recorded, was it 2018 that we did the Christmas hats? Or was that last year, 2019? Who even remembers at this point? But 
Maybe all of them. <laughs> all of them. Um, I just remember always getting very hot and bothered. But on a serious note, high five through the screen mm-hmm. for our last episode of 2020. It would have been so easy to have dropped the podcast throughout this period, but I'm so happy we didn't. I think we've put together some really super episodes this year, if I may say so myself. And honestly, I think us having a little chat on this podcast has been one of the few highlights of the year just keeping me very much grounded in what we really love doing so i totally agree nadia i'm very proud of us and now body image in india shall shall we get on to that okay body image in india We have a wonderful discussion to share with you, so there isn't going to be a lot from Jade and myself, but to give a bit of an introduction, I spoke with members of our team at CAR, so Dr. Helena Lewis-Smith, Kirsty Garbett and Fahin Hassan, who worked slash currently are working on body image projects in India as part of the Dove Self-Esteem Project Portfolio of Work which regular listeners will know is led by Professor Philippa Dierdrichs and, of course, is all funded by Unilever. Then, in addition to the CAR India Body Image team, we're joined by some of their collaborators, Dr. Hemel Shroff, Dr. Mega Dillon, Manavi Karana, Rushika Kaval and Mega Shuklani. They will each introduce themselves at the start of the discussion alongside a fun fact, but in brief... Hemel is a clinical and school psychologist based in Canada. Mika Dillon teaches psychology at the Lady Sharam College, University of Delhi. And then Manavi, Rushika and Mika Shuklani all work at the Karma Centre for Counselling and Wellbeing, which is located in Delhi. Manavi is the founder of the Karma Centre and is a clinical psychologist. Rushika is the chief operations officer and also a clinical psychologist. And then Mega Shuklani is a consultant and counselling psychologist. And we will put a link to the Karma Centre for Counselling and Wellbeing in the show notes. Wow. Well done, Nadia, for breaking that down. That was a lot. But I actually think this breaks the record for the most guests on a single podcast episode of ours. Am I right? I think you are right, Jade. Um, And that's not the full team. So a few other quick mentions. There is Anshula Chowdhury who conducted the majority of the fieldwork in India and was the full-time research associate during the the period of the projects that are going to be discussed. And then we have Associate Professor Paul White, who is a statistician at the University of the West of England and the chief stats guy on all of the projects that we're going to discuss, as well as Scylla and Nora at, at King's College London, who are wizards at measures validation statistics and did a lot of work with the team also. Wow, yeah, again, such a full team. And it's good to highlight, though, as it shows what it kind of takes for a large, successful international projects and all the, the people that need to be involved. So I'm wondering, can you give us a bit of a preview on what you discussed and perhaps kind of flag any highlights that came up? Sure, I would love to. So as you'll hear, it's a really informative, insightful conversation. We cover a lot. So we talk about appearance pressures in India, what they are and where they come from, and then discuss some of the work the team did together, specifically developing and evaluating Dove Confident Me India, which is a five-session school-based body image intervention for adolescents aged 11 to 14. 
Um, Helena and Kirsty will talk a lot more about it, but the programme essentially covers addressing societal appearance ideals, media literacy, appearance comparisons, appearance-related conversations and teasing, and promoting body activism. Dove Confident Me India is an adaptation of the original five-session version of Dove Confident Me, which was trialled in the UK a few years ago and recently published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. So there's all of that about the about the intervention. And we also spoke a little bit about the measures validation. So what's the point of measures validation? Why do we do it? And what's currently in the works for the team working on body image projects in India? As you might imagine, we could have spoken for hours turning this into a Bollywood-length episode. Yeah, I like what you did there, Nadia. Bollywood films are typically much longer than Hollywood films, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Bollywood films, I think, on average are, are three hours plus. So a bit longer than the uh, our, uh, American Hollywood-type films. That's a lot more popcorn, then. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and Even I've usually um, finished my popcorn before the film even starts. <laughs> I miss going to the cinema. Um, but on the on the note of Bollywood, we do talk about Bollywood and its role in promoting unrealistic appearance ideals. And what was really interesting to me in this conversation is that it's not just the the visuals, so it's not just the casting in in the films, but it's also the songs. And we listen to some lyrics from some Bollywood songs which reinforce appearance standards. So to have light coloured skin, for example, or for women to have a small waist. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that part as well. Yeah, so we play a few songs in it and a special thanks to Faheen for picking out the songs that we we listen to. And it's also worth noting that there was a long, long list of songs for us to pick from. So uh, it seems like it's not an exception to have these these lyrics that are highly reinforcing of the appearance ideal. The other thing I wanted to flag, which I think is really interesting, is... When we were talking about appearance ideals in India and appearance pressures, I think there are some commonalities, so things that are very uh, relatable for us in the UK, for example, in terms of media, social media, for example, being a, a big influence. But then some some slight differences in terms of the emphasis to be to have light coloured skin. So we know that in terms of related to colorism, which could be a whole other topic and hopefully will be sometime. And then pressure in terms of dating and marriage. And so for anyone who's seen Indian Matchmaker on Netflix might have a bit of a, an inkling on this. And then uh, the other thing I've watched recently, I don't I don't know if you've seen it, Jade, is on Netflix and this is because I have too much time on my hands in this uh, <laughs> through, through this uh, lockdown situation but we uh, there's a program called fame's lives of bollywood wives it's a bit of a spin-off of real housewives of beverly hills etc that kind of franchise so it's a it's a series but i think you also there get a bit of a flavor of how people talk to each other and how appearance talk is really really common and very direct i think i haven't but thanks for signposting to that because I, there's lots of interesting elements here and I yeah. like that there's so many things that it links to but also lots of things that it, it like you say the differences as well as the similarities so I kind of think that we should get on to the interview because we could talk about this for hours <laughs> great idea Jade let's hi I'm Dr. Hema Shroff I'm a clinical and school psychologist in Ontario Canada 
I work in the Toronto District School Board uh, and as a part-time lecturer at York University. So something fun about me, for those of you who know Bollywood at all, most would have heard of Amitabh Bachchan. He's a famous star from the 70s and the 80s and still considered iconic in the industry and I had a chance to meet him. So that's my shot mm -hmm. at something famous, I guess. Hi, my name is Dr. Megha Dhillon and I teach psychology at Lady Sri Ram College for Women, University of Delhi. And the college itself is located in New Delhi, India. And a fun fact about me is that, you know, I have a childhood memory of Amitabh Bachchan's uh, autograph coming home. My mom bought it. And I think that's one of my finest childhood memories. And another one is that I am mother to a nine-year-old daughter and we have very different personalities. But we discovered a common love during the lockdown, which is cooking. And so she helps me in the kitchen now. And I have a cute little assistant. So it's great fun to cook. Thanks. So hi, everyone. I'm Manvi. I am the founder at uh, Karma Center for Counseling and Wellbeing and also the counseling psychologist there. Um, a fun fact about me would be um, I love to cook Naga food. So food that is from Nagaland. Hi everyone, so I'm Megha Sutwani and I'm a counseling psychologist and a rehabilitation psychologist based out of New Delhi. I'm also a consultant psychologist with Karma Center uh, in New Delhi again. Um, a fun fact about me would be that I used to be phobic, like extremely phobic to dogs and now I have a five-year-old dog myself and I'm obsessed with dogs. So yeah, that's, that's changed my life. I am... Ruchika, um, and I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and I'm based out in Delhi and I'm also the CEO at Karma. One fun fact about me, I was wondering since the time I got the meal, um, I think it should be that I got married this Feb and I've been stuck in lockdown with my husband since forever. So yeah, waiting for the lockdown to be over for me too start moving out of home. Hi everybody, so my name's Helena Lewis-Smith um, and I'm a senior research fellow um, at CAR and I've had the privilege of leading this research in India across the past few years and working with these wonderful women um, and I guess the fact about me, like actually a lot of people on this call who I know also have dogs, um, I have a dog and I'm, I love my dog and he has been a fantastic company during lockdown and I also have a love for plants. Um, and I have about 50 plants in my tiny one-bedroom flat. So that's me. So my name is Kirsty Garbett. Um, I'm a research fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research um, in the UK. And a fun fact about me, so sticking with the theme of the podcast, on my left arm, I actually have a tattoo of an Asian elephant. Hi everyone, I am Farheen Hassan. I work as a research associate at the Center for Appearance Research in Bristol as well with Helena and Kirsty. And a fun fact about me is that I'm a history nerd. So on my time away from work and working in psychology, I'm usually reading up on everything related to historical events that I find fascinating. Um, yeah, that's me. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone. So I want to start by talking about appearance pressures and body image concerns in India. And Hemel, I wonder if I can ask you to start us off by describing the stereotypical appearance ideals in India. 
Sure. Um, I would say that there are several stereotypical appearance ideals in India. Uh, and of course, I would emphasize that they have changed over the years with increasing globalization, Western influences. Uh, the ideals do vary somewhat between rural and urban areas. India is a very diverse country, obviously. Um, for girls and women, the um, stereotypical appearance ideals involve lighter um, skin color, but also clear skin, hair being long and silky, um, specific facial features, including larger eyes, um, the shape of the nose being less flat or hooked. Uh, when it comes to body appearance ideals, breast size is important for women so that they're not flat chested. Um, a flat stomach is very, very important. Uh, thinner arms and proportional hips. Height isn't as much, like it hasn't been as crucial an appearance ideal, but overall like a slim body type. So not so much a twiggy look, but a certain amount of you know, voluptuousness is emphasized. Uh, definitely there has been a thinning of the ideals in the last 25 years. And for men, um, there are some of these are important, but there is an added emphasis on muscularity uh, and six pack abs that is more recent. Um, the standards are, of course, a lot more strict for women. Yes, brilliant. Thank you. And then, Mega Dylan, I wonder if you could talk a little about where these ideals come from. Yes, I think for anyone who's grappling with body dissatisfaction, there are certain very potent sources that convey the appearance ideals to you. And I think amongst these, the most potent is the family itself, including the extended family. Uh, and these standards are conveyed often through a culture of commenting and comparison. So your appearance is often commented on. You may be compared with your cousins, with your siblings, and sometimes to, your even, to even your parents. So you'll be told that your mother is so fair. How come you are not? You don't really have an answer to that, do you? Um, also, your relatives may link your appearance to your chances of getting married. So you're told that, look, you're, you're a bit tanned right now and you need to work on your skin tone if you want a good match. I think another source of appearance ideals is peers. So appearance-based conversations, complimenting each other, criticizing each other, commenting on your photos on social media has also become another source. Discussing the appearance of celebrities. Now that I'm talking about celebrities, the media, of course, is a very important source of appearance ideals as well traditional media and social media. So if you look at social media right now in India, it's replete with images of perfect looking people. And these perfect looking celebrities are the targets of social comparison, especially for the urban youth. In fact, not just for the urban youth, anyone who has access to social media. And the standards that the celebrities are currently presenting in India now are extremely high. And within the media, you have to talk about the advertising industry. We have, a, 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 a TVs are flooded with products which are related to beauty, products which are related to dieting, and they still offer you a perfect life if you consume those products. So use our fairness cream and you'll have the perfect life. So I think a lot of pressures are coming from these three sources, family, peers, and media. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And we speak about those three different sources in lots of different countries around the world. But the examples that you are giving from family in particular seem maybe a little different to a UK context, for example, um, where it's so direct, where it's so blunt with the feedback. So I think we're going to come to those themes over and over. But 
Fahin very kindly picked out a couple of Bollywood songs that we wanted to talk about in this episode. So I'm going to play a couple of clips and then I would really like us to to discuss what's happening within these songs. So the first one, let me know if you can hear. And then let's play the second. Fahin, can you tell me what these songs are about? Yeah, Nadia, I would be happy to. So they're two quite uh, popular Bollywood songs. And um, they're both quite focused on appearance. Um, The first one is literally referring to looking fair or looking light-skinned, which is what the title of the song refers to as well. And the second song, which is called Kamariya, which literally means your back or your waistline, is focused on how the girl appears when she's dancing or how her body looks um, or how attractive she looks because of her body. Um, So they're both very focused on, especially the second one, very focused on appearance and being attractive because of the way you look um, and how that is perceived by the male singer singing that song. Brilliant, thank you. And I guess we hear a lot in terms of appearance pressures in India that Bollywood is a big source of appearance pressure. And we've got this example from the songs, but I wonder how common this is. Do most of the songs... Or is it common for the songs to include appearance ideals within their lyrics? And I wonder if anyone else wants to talk more about that. Absolutely. I think Mm. that is normalized in in a lot of our songs, right? And Mm. even um, um, things like, you know, expecting a person to be fair or to be um, extremely thin, malnourished, that and even, um, you know, songs which promote the lack of consent for example, on part of a girl, there's a song which which says, and you can Google it. Um, it says "Kundi mat kharkao raja," and which literally translates to, you know, "Sidha andar ao raja." It says that don't even knock the door, just please come in and you know take me as I am. So in and a lot of uh, there's a lot of fat shaming in 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 our songs as well. Um, so I, I just, uh, and it's something that helps uh, these kind of things get normalized. And, um, you know, young boys listen to this kind of music, young girls listen and uh, the cycle goes on. This is what they get to learn because at that age they learn through just mimicry or uh, listening to, you know, what is there. So unfortunately, still a lot of that uh, does go on in, in our music. I would agree that there is kind of this, uh, you know, sexualization of female characters in many of the Bollywood um, uh, songs, um, along with a focus on clothing, you know, like maybe not in the lyrics of the song, but in terms of the actual appearance of the female characters that they do have to dress a certain way. Um, but I would say not, 
I mean, I, I think your, the second part of your question was whether there are any songs that fight against these appearance standards. And I would say there aren't that many, but there are a few more in the artsy or offbeat cinema and ones where basically people aren't dancing uh, that are playing in the background. You know, regional cinema also provides some variation. So I would say that I know you asked about Bollywood, but there is a little bit more variation in regional cinema. Um, I could also come in and add something. Um, so I haven't come across any songs in Bollywood that specifically challenge appearance ideals. The kind of songs that I've come across in mainstream Bollywood cinema and uh, are empowering in nature talk about women, uh, uh, encouraging women to be free, to uh, encouraging women to embrace their spirit, encouraging women to recognize their inner strength. Those kinds of songs do exist. There's a song called Bhakkar from a mainstream Bollywood movie called Dangal. And there's a song called the Mardani Anthem from a, a, a film called Mardani. Uh, in who, uh, in, and in the film, the protagonist was uh, a female actor. So we've had those kinds of songs that talk about encouraging women to be free, to be strong, to be resilient, but they don't challenge appearance ideals specifically. That's a really interesting point. I guess so. It's a, an example of some progress for for women more broadly, but just need to move it forward to challenging appearance ideals. So I wonder now if we move on and talk more about body image concerns in India. And I wonder if our colleagues from the Karma Center could talk more about this, uh, given your work with young people. Where do the young people say that they experience these body image pressures from? So kind of relating back to that initial question to, to Mega. I think Mega has covered it uh, very well that the three main sources are definitely family, peer, as well as the social media. Um, and revolving around that only, I think it's a lot about the expectation that the society puts on how a woman needs to appear. You know, for the longest period of time, the matrimonial advertisement would hold certain statements like, uh, we want a, a girl who has this kind of height and should have fair skin and should be convent educated as much as education. Um, definitely something that we'd like to promote, but the certain other aspects of these advertisements would pressurize indirectly uh, in a lot of ways for the family to make sure that their daughters look a certain way to be eligible to get a good matrimonial prospect. So the way overall the society looks into appearance and especially focus being on women, um, you know, was is something that has gone on for centuries. And even now in the matrimonial advertisement, you'd still see a lot of people still asking for that. I do see a lot of clients who have body image issues, especially because they've been turned down by, um, you know, the many prospective grooms and their families who've met them. Um, there have been conversations around that, you know, here's a wet wipe and would you want to wipe your face, which is something that I came across very recently when one of the clients said that she's been in this whole circle of arranged marriage system in the, uh, in the Indian context and how she was asked publicly to wipe her face so that they make sure she hasn't applied any makeup you know so a lot of that 
um, is something that we witness with clients and of course with fellow people. So I think that complete societal pressure in terms of the whole matrimonial thing does start placing a lot of pressure, especially in women. Thank you for that. I mean, that just is such a huge source of pressure, as you're saying. And, and again, it feels very direct and confrontational, I think, in terms of that real blatant pressure of like, you should look like this and that shaming element of like using the face wipe to make sure that you're not covering your skin with makeup. So it's it looks lighter and it might not be. So you can see that being such a, a huge source of pressure for, for young people, girls and women in particular. Migo, I wonder if we can move on and, and talk a little bit about what do we know at the moment about appearance and body image concerns among adolescents in India? So I actually looked up the latest research to see what kind of estimates are emerging as far as body dissatisfaction is concerned. So one of the things about the literature is that a lot of this work is happening with college students. So we have statistics broadly for young people in the country, and we need statistics for other age groups as well. I have one study on college students in New Delhi conducted last year on males and females found estimate rates of about 35%. So in that sample, which was a sample of 370 undergrad medical students, about 35% reported being unhappy with the way they looked. And body dissatisfaction were more common amongst males than females in that study. Also, a lot of young people said that their understanding of appearance standards was largely coming from the media. Cut to another study done around the same time in the southern city of Coimbatore, uh, very far away from New Delhi, again on college students, just females, where the prevalence rates for body dissatisfaction were a whooping 77%. So two studies with very varying rates, 35% and 77%, but that's a substantial number of young people grappling with body image issues. It's a serious, real concern. Absolutely. And I think we see very varying stats in lots of different countries around the world. And I think part of that is a, an issue with measures and how are we measuring body image and body dissatisfaction to begin with, to make those comparisons across studies. You know, while, while doing some of these, um, uh, some of the classes with the kids, mm-hmm. yeah, I wanted to answer your question as to... Um, you know, where do these appearance ideals, these norms, mm-hmm. uh, where do they come from? And I was thinking really hard. I was trying to think about, you know, what goes on in the classroom, what kind of bullying goes on in the classroom. So I saw, um, uh, you know, boys basically uh, calling other boys uh, girly because they were crying or showing their emotions or, you know, their expression in certain areas was like that. Um there was a little bit of, you know, hair, uh, making fun of uh, girls' legs hair, um, you know, and a bit of that went on in class. And I was thinking where it, it could come from. I feel like there's not, again, there's not a lot of talk about puberty, hitting puberty. So literally the children in India hit puberty um, without being prepared without, you know, the psychoeducation for people around them. Um, the kind of images um, does not show, you know, a girl with, with hair. They're all cleaned up. 
for you know public viewing or whatever it is but um that's the reality and that's what happens and and it's not spoken about it is not made an effort to be normalized in the classroom as you know as just dialogue sex education is a step forward even puberty isn't explained so i think there's there's a little bit of uh, you know although it's getting better i must say uh, because of some really terrible incidents that have happened but it's getting better we do have sex education in a lot of the private schools still in the government schools the curriculum is not really there because it's still a taboo to talk about it they feel that if you want to tell children about sex that they'll start having it and we we know that that's not true so um i think that's a place that some of these ideals could be coming from and a system where they are not broken perpetuates them Thank you, Manavi. And I think that's such a good point about normalising the changes adolescents go through during puberty. So explaining that it is just something that's normal, that everyone is going to go through it at some stage in some form. So that's brilliant. And I think now would be a really good time to, to talk about some of the research that you all have been doing. Helena, I wonder if I can start with you and if you could give us an overview of that first project you led and worked on in India. Of course. So as we've just heard, um, clearly body image um, is, uh, is an issue in India, but it's not taken seriously. Um, so we already knew that this was something that was common among young people, that they experienced body image concerns, even though there's not that much research published on it. But anecdotally, um, you know, we know this clearly. However, um, unsurprisingly, <laughs> there was no intervention that had been re- rigorously developed, evaluated for young people in India. Therefore, we kind of put our heads together and thought about what we could do to do that and we teamed up with Mega Dillon and Hemel um, who I would say are the leading experts on body image research in India right now um, and we worked together to adapt an existing body image program which is known as Dove Confident Me so um, Philippa Deirdrix and my colleagues at Carr including Kirsty um, evaluated this program among young people in the UK and it's a five session uh, classroom program delivered in schools and it targets risk factors for body dissatisfaction such as internalization of appearance ideals, um, appearance conversations, appearance comparisons and media literacy Um, and they found that it was effective at improving body image up to six months later so it's a really really promising intervention. So we worked with Mega and Hemel to firstly adapt it for the Indian context to make sure that, you know, it was actually appropriate because, you know, as we know, we can't just lift up an intervention um, that was developed in one culture and necessarily apply it to another. Um, And so what was really, really important here was to, I think, firstly, to make sure that we were referring to the body image concerns. um, So such as as discussed, so skin um, concerns, we made sure that we did that justice and this was something that was that was given attention to um, and we also made sure that cultural references were appropriate so as discussed already you know family is such a key influence as is Bollywood and therefore we had to include those in the intervention um, and so this was the first thing that we did a lot of work was spent just making sure that the intervention would be appropriate for the context and then that's when we uh, reached out to the Karma Centre um, and we had the privilege of um, training Manavi 
Rachika and Mega in delivery of the program. So we went out to India and um, delivered them in the program and got their feedback on it. And then we tested the acceptability of the program. So we actually went into schools and we delivered it as it was um, to see what students thought, you know, what did they like about it? What didn't they like about it? Was it relevant, et cetera. And after we did that and we had feedback from the students and also Manavi, Chika and Mega, um, we then made adaptations to the program and went into a full scale randomized control trial. So this involved um, six schools and we had 567 students and they went through the program, again developed, developed by our colleagues at Karma Centre um, for five weeks. And we tested the impact of the intervention on body image internalization to sort of using a couple of other outcomes um, immediately after and at three months. Um, and so, yeah, that, that essentially is what the research that we did. So it took quite a long time, um, but we really wanted to develop a program that we know we knew would be appropriate for the Indian context. Brilliant. Thanks, Helena. And thanks for laying that out so clearly. But before we get to what you found, I know an integral piece to doing this work in India is what we talk about as researchers as measures validation. And Kirsty, I feel you're our resident expert on, on measures validation. So I wonder if you could talk to, to me and to our listeners about why this is important and how you even go about this. Sure. Um, so measures validation work, it essentially lays the groundwork or is kind of the building of the backbone for any research conducted in a new cultural context or a new country. Um, so in the field of body image, um, the majority of kind of the scales and measures that we use um, have been developed in kind of Western contexts. So in the United States, in Western Europe or in Australia. And we can't just apply those and use those in an Indian context, because as we've heard, um, the body image concerns are very, very different in India. So we can't assume these measures are necessarily going to work. Um, so we had to think of how we were going to measure body image accurately so we could assess what impact the intervention that we had designed was going to have. Um, so we, rather than kind of reinventing the wheel, we searched the literature for all the available measures of body image, of which there are many, some might argue too many, um, and tried to identify a measure that we thought would be um, a good starting point for an accurate measure in India. And the key kind of focus for us was to identify a measure that was quite holistic, so it had a really broad conceptualization of what um, body image is. So we didn't want a measure that purely focused on weight or shape, because as we know, there's many more concerns um, among young people in India. So we opted for the body esteem scale for adults and adolescents as an appropriate measure. And then we worked with um, everyone on this podcast and a group of adolescents in India to kind of go through the, um, the measure really um, thoroughly to check understanding, to make sure the wording was appropriate for in Indian adolescents, to check understanding. And we made some kind of minor modifications to the scale at that point. And I think we also removed a couple of items that just weren't fit for purpose in India. And then the last part of um, the process is to get um, the measure completed like at scale with over a thousand adolescents in India. And then we essentially crunch the numbers um, and do some analysis on the responses they give us to make sure that everything's kind of holding together or grouping together um, in a kind of 
theoretically sound way um and yeah um which we found to be really successful and uh we're really pleased with the results that we got and um it essentially is the is now the measure that we use in our research in India to really accurately capture um body image among adolescents and the real bonus of having a measure like that is that we can hopefully um, avoid what Mega Dillon was just describing in terms of those disparities in body image concerns. If we're all using the same measure, um, we can start to see how body image concerns might be different across India, for example. Right. Brilliant. Thanks, Kirsty. And then at least we know we're making a true comparison, right? So if we're using the same measure. Excellent. So I wonder now if we turn to our colleagues at the Karma Centre, so Manavi, Vichika and Mega, if you could talk to us about what it was like delivering this lesson to adolescents in India. How did they respond? Maybe talk a bit about that acceptability piece. I think um, before we get to even that phase where we delivered it to the adolescents, I think um, it's also important to highlight what it was for us to be trained into that because there are so many aspects of the module that we did come across which were so normalized in our context in our cultures and our psychosocial realities that it can almost go for uh, a miss in our day-to-day life so you might know it's problematic but it's probably pushed into a banter pushed into uh, jokes pushed into comments that we've sort of learned to ignore or move past but the fact that delivering it to adolescents um of, of this certain age and um, certain uh, socioeconomic background, we also needed to understand that how well-versed are we with our uh, biases and prejudices. So it was a very interesting process to start with, to unlearn so many of our aspects. And secondly, the second observation that comes in there uh, is, is about um, how was it received? So initially, in, in uh, and it was also interesting to see that how it was differently received in different schools where kids were from a certain um, socioeconomic background, from a certain locality and demographics even within uh, the, the space of Delhi. Um, so it, it is uh, definitely something that did take a while because it was a concept which is never really spoken about. In fact, uh, it, it's very common, as uh, Mangi was also mentioning, to get bullied in, in that uh, age and stage of life, that your comments are on appearance, your uh, evaluation is on appearance. So there was a bit of a resistance initially, I would admit. But slowly, when we made it more uh, comprehensive, of course, the uh, second time we went in, the examples that we worked on were much more relatable. The clippings were much more relatable. And it was something which they saw happening in their everyday life. So it was something that they could also step back and say that, okay, this is not okay to uh, do this. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Mega. I wonder, Manavi or Rishika, if you have anything else you want to add. Um, I think, yeah, I completely agree with um, the experience that Mega also shared, learning and unlearning so many things. Um, and then moving on to actually looking for schools uh, that that would you know take on the module the reservations that some schools had taking on the module because they maybe didn't want to talk about things like appearance you know they didn't think it was important that in itself was an eye-opener to see um, you know not um, not the psychologists but 
you know uh, mega and um, some other members of the team and they were looking for schools to go through this process to recruit schools to tell them you know the work we are doing is actually good work will have an impact on 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 their lives um so from that to actually getting into the schools to delivering the module has been uh, such a wonderful experience um uh, because you know the module was designed in such uh, such a thought out way um you know from getting feedback from from you know just understanding where they're coming from first uh then little bits of the intervention showing them videos um you know talking to them at the age that they are it was really specifically designed for that and towards the end you could see concrete changes in the way they thought concrete they were able to identify for example uh, you know we use so much social media so what is fake from what is not fake and unfortunately not many we don't have such an intervention which is homemade which is which is there in india um so as a therapist it was very fulfilling work that we were also getting to do um you know uh, just working with these children and giving them these modules and just seeing the journey um was just really nice I think I completely agree with what um Mega and Manvi have uh spoken about but I'll share a very very little um experience here when I remember walking in one of the schools and um my sweet child who came and said that um you know you you're very pretty to the last workshop when the child came and said that you delivered the presentation very well you see a change in what they noticed in the beginning to the whole idea of understanding and appreciating somebody's skills somebody's strengths over appearance um was a big learning and i think like megha had said um that there were so many things that we were so ignorant about to understanding and learning all of that ourselves and walking in in the center and you know appreciating somebody's presence over how they looked you know or something that was very valuable and i'm sure um a lot of students spoke about you know as much as we can effectively look into how we are portraying ourselves on social medias and how to respond to appearance uh related comments or um talks a lot of students did also speak about that as much as we can change the way we see things now it will still take much longer to convince our families how to see things in terms of appearance so it was nice to know that students did pick up how they personally can change the way they are seeing things but also practically knowing that it will take so much more time to change the overall outlook of people how they see appearance and appearance idols yeah completely societal change is a big job so it needs lots of people doing the work and i really like that example of the child from the beginning saying about looking pretty and then going to 
uh, how well you delivered the the session. And I think what we keep hearing is this idea of unlearning and relearning new ways. And I think that's a common aspect whenever we're talking about body image and appearance pressures. So thank you so much for that. I want to turn back now to Helena and Kirsty and hear what you found from the trial. What were your biggest learnings? What were your takeaways? Okay, so on the whole, before we get into um, the kind of what we actually found, like what changes we saw, um, I think it was really encouraging um, to see some of the acceptability findings from the trial. So this is where we asked um, our, our participants to tell us what they learned from the intervention or what did they like about it or what didn't they like and um, did they find it enjoyable? These kind of responses were were really brilliant to read um, and it was really obvious um, that the students had really grasped the key concepts that we wanted to get across to them um, which in so some of the some of the readings were just so lovely and, and nice to see and then I think the other thing that came out really clearly um, was students really wanted to talk about this issue and they hadn't necessarily had the chance before so when we think about school recruitment and Manavi touched on some of the challenges of trying to recruit the schools, what was really clear is that once we had that go ahead um, and got into the schools, the students were desperate to learn about it. So I think there's something in there about finding an access point to, to kind of be able to deliver this stuff because there's a real need for it um, among the students. So yeah, all, all good news on the acceptability front. And then, yeah, over to me. Um, and I guess just to add to that before I talk about the effectiveness, I think what I really learned from this is how important it is to make sure an intervention is adapted for the context. And I think sometimes we overlook this, um, particularly, you know, guilty myself when we're doing research in, in the UK, more Western settings. And I think that, you know, and the reason why we worked really, really hard to make sure this intervention was suitable for the Indian context because it was so different to you know the culture it was developed in but I think it really highlighted to me how important um, those key stages are of looking at the acceptability and making sure that it's appropriate so that was something that I think um, was definitely a key learning for myself um, and then in terms of the effectiveness findings and again I think this kind of they tell us how little this is talked about in India because basically we found analyses are still ongoing um, and a shout out to Paul White, who um, is one of our collaborators, statistician on this project. Um, but they're very, very promising. So what we think we found is that the intervention improved body image, disordered eating, internalization, self-esteem and positive effect. And this is up to three months later as well. Um, again, this is hot off the press and this may change, but, you know, we were really, really pleased with these findings, like really, really pleased. And I think this just speaks to you because the effect size, what we've looked at provisionally, they're a lot larger than when you compare it with other school interventions and other um, other studies. But again, those studies tend to be conducted in Western, um, you know, um, cultures such as the US, Europe, Australia, where I think it is more normalized. People do talk about their body image, whereas in India, because it's not, and, you know, like Richka, Manavi, Mega, they've all said, you know, even for them, this was something quite new to unlearn some of the things they had learned. And so I think this is why the intervention was so um, positive for this group of young people, because, you know, I really think it was something they hadn't considered before um, and therefore it had the potential to improve their body image um, and these other related aspects. So, um, yeah, we were really, really, really pleased with, with those findings. 
And it's just a phenomenal effort. And I think it's all of those different components, right, from the measured validation to working with collaborators. So I think it's that combined effort as well to make sure that you've got it right and that time it took to get it right before you went to test the intervention. And I also think we've learned so much from each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, myself and Kirsty learned so much from working, you know, with everybody here. And, um, you know, and it sounds like they also learned from us <laughs> as well. So it's just been, yeah, it's been really, really fun um, as well on the side as well as, you know, a good, good working relationships. And like, yeah, it's just been mm-hmm. so wonderful to work with this group. And yeah, I think like you said, Nadia, I can't stress enough the importance of working with experts in the field, in that country, mm-hmm. in that context. Yeah, brilliant. And I think we could talk about that for a long time. Kirsty. One more point on acceptability. I can't let this opportunity pass. But when I was reading through all the um, acceptability findings of things students liked, the most popular response were the counsellors at Karma for delivering it so well. That was their top favourite thing. Um, So yeah, yeah, just opportunity to say thank you again for doing such a phenomenal job. Brilliant. I'm glad you got that in, Kirsty. Okay, I'm going to move us on um, because I'm conscious of time. So I want to transition a little bit and talk about appearance concerns and the idea of caste and class in India. And I wonder maybe if our colleagues from the Karma Centre can talk a little bit about that. How does caste and class play a role in appearance pressures in India? I think in terms of um, class, I think um, I haven't done a lot of research in this aspect, but I do feel that it's an overall uh, phenomenon experienced by people across the, uh, you know, the society, whether it's from the higher socioeconomic status families or you talk about the lower socioeconomic status families, but in my personal experience uh, as a therapist, I do see that the more the privilege a person has, the more is the need to be a certain way. You know, for example, young um, girls who have the privilege of visiting the salon at earlier uh, age are more keen into looking a certain way because they also have the resources to go with the you know ideals that they have for example you know a lot of women might feel that you know i want straight hair they have more of that resource to follow and look a lot more like their idols whereas um probably adolescents coming from the lower socioeconomic background might not have the resources, but it clearly doesn't mean that they do not have these appearance idle issues. How they behaviorally uh, respond to those issues is something that might be put in the class structure. Um, I don't know about the caste, but um, Regionally, also in India, because of, let's say, the skin color, um, there's a, a gap between the skin color of 
people who are at the north side of the India and the southern side and from people who you know transit from the south to the north for job for employment for school even young uh, adolescents and young adults who move um, regionally or demographically do experience a lot of pressure in terms of their skin color in terms of uh, you know the whole idea of dark skin and fair skin so if again we put it demographically yes they do experience a lot of pressure because of the um, the majority population looking a certain way and they not being able to fit in those uh, idols in that demographic. Behain, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just want to add to what Ruchika was also saying about representation of class and fairness um, in India. I think it's also a good time to mention Bollywood representation of class and skin color. It's kind of recently become a topic of debate in the last few years, I would say, how in Bollywood movies, often an actor who's playing, who's meant to show someone from a lower class or someone who's poor has a darker skin tone. So for example, I can think of Urta Punjab, in which the actress Alia Bhatt, who's quite fair, like has very fair skin, is shown to have a darker skin tone because she's shown to be someone from a poor family or from a very poor part of India. Whereas if you see the same actress in a different movie where she's playing someone from an upper middle class background, then this obviously isn't done. So I think it highlights a very big problem in our society, how we perceive people from different classes and how I think how much weight we put to fairness and how that translates into how that's even represented in our media. Thanks, Faheen. I think that's a, a great point. Nadia, can I just add one quick, um, if you don't mind? So I would say that, you know, historically, there would have been more differences uh, based on socioeconomic class so that, you know, because people were from really poor backgrounds being like having more weight, you know, would have historically been a good thing for women, you know, related to fertility and all of those um, aspects as well. But I think the more urbanized people are in India, uh, I think there's less and less of that uh, kind of focus on weight because malnutrition is obviously no longer a concern. So I think in terms of socioeconomic class, you do definitely you have seen I have seen that there is you know kind of like I remember my maid coming and telling me um, so she was older and she said oh you know my son met all these girls but they um, they're all overweight like they're fat I'm not going to let him get married to someone who's fat. Uh, and so I think over time there has been this, you know, um, exposure and urbanization, which has led people to, for this to percolate down, I think, even to the lower socioeconomic uh, classes. And with caste, it, like, you know, like Farheen said, I think skin color definitely across all um, religious backgrounds, castes, classes, skin color is a huge thing. Um, but um, I would say, unfortunately, there isn't that much research on caste differences in you know, body appearance ideals, and it would actually be very valuable to have that. Yeah, that would be that would be brilliant. So if anyone wants to do that work, um, please. So before we move on, I wonder, Mega Dylan, if you could maybe just say a few, a, a few sentences on um, how relevant body image concerns are to those who don't belong to those upper and middle, um, middle classes in India. Yes, I think there are two points which I really want to bring on board. One is one has to understand that the pressures around appearance, which are definitely high in India, um, 
aren't the only pressures that young people in this country are feeling. Uh, the academic pressures for young people in India are tremendous. And this is like handling two major pressures when you're young. One, to do really well academically, get A plus on every paper that you're attempting in every course. Otherwise, you're told that your future shall you know, just be shattered. And the other is to look perfect. So perfect grades and perfect appearance. That's what young people are grappling with right now. The other thing is that it's true. Both poverty and belonging to an apparently lower caste are associated with darker skin color. And also, uh, very unfortunately, and I feel so sad saying this, generally an unkept appearance. There are very strong stereotypes linking past, class, and appearance. And often these are very implicit. People are not even aware of the fact that they carry these stereotypes and the fact that they affect their behavior. So the implicitness of the stereotypes is also something that needs to be taken into account. In terms of how class links up with body image pressures in India, again, it's an under-researched field. We do know from other countries like Brazil that usually more affluence um, is related with higher, stronger pressures. Um, we really don't know in a research-based way what the case is in India. But from the conversations that I've had and just, you know, anecdotes lead me to believe that specific appearance pressures cut across socioeconomic strata. So the idea that a girl should have fair skin and long hair in order to enhance her chances of getting married cut across socioeconomic strata. We also have to understand that most urban households in India, irrespective of family income, do have a mobile phone in the house, which means that you can access social media images of celebrities looking perfect. And then, um, irrespective of household income, that's a pressure that you feel you must live up to as well. So I think uh, the links between class and body image uh, pressures is something that we need to start taking very seriously now. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Other mega. Yeah, just just a little thing that was just mm -hmm. coming to my mind when um, everybody was pitching in, is that even in our mainstream uh, media, Bollywood movies or even regional movies, you'll find, and as we were saying, that there's a certain skin color, there's a certain demeanor that's associated with a certain class. And it also boils down to a lot of the caste politics and historically you'll see that caste is something which was associated with certain professions. So even in that depiction that we see is that you will find small kids portraying the role of this typical malnourished, uh, dark skinned, let's say, boy who's uh, looking at a hoarding. And it's a very common um, scene that we see in a lot of movies of looking up at a hoarding of the celebrity and is trying to rub his skin very hard to in order to get that. And that's something that's very very normalized and it's not just in in mainstream bollywood but also regional movies also in art uh cinema and, and there's a lot of themes which is uh running underlying and parallel to these um notions of what a certain person from a certain caste and class and uh, a third factor then in the indian context is ethnicity is supposed to look like uh and anything beyond that is is unacceptable so it's also, if even if somebody would want to break it, firstly, there is discouragement to that as well, because then it's supposed to be that you cannot be entering the other arena of the other caste and class and ethnicity.
I don't want to move on from this topic because it's so interesting. I want to to keep going, but I am conscious of time. So thank you for all those contributions. It's it's so interesting and, and obviously an under-researched area as well. So if we can get some more research done in that area, that would be great. But some research that is being uh, carried out at the moment is some work with our team and UNICEF. So... Helena, I wonder if we can go back to you and, and tell us a little bit about the project that you and Fahin and some of the team are, are working on in partnership with UNICEF India. India. Sure. So um, basically, we have been very, very fortunate to um, be working alongside UNICEF India um, and the Dug Self-Esteem Project um, for the last year. Uh, we've been working with them. And this was in light of our findings that, you know, we developed this body image program that we think is effective in improving body image for young people in more affluent, um, socioeconomically high urban areas. However, would this intervention be appropriate for all the young people here in more rural settings who maybe have, um, have a lower socio-demographic background? And given that Confident Me is based on, you know, using a PowerPoint um, presentation, um, you know, worksheets, um, there is a lot of reliance on resources which, which may not be available in all parts of India. Therefore, this partnership with UNICEF is um, to develop a body image program that can be used in all parts of India that doesn't rely on electricity, that doesn't rely on a computer. Um, and as um, my colleagues have all just discussed, you know, again, there is research missing, but we do know that body image issues are common among all um, socio-demographic groups because the pressures are still there. The pressure is still there to look a certain way, um, you know, to be attractive, to, to make a to make an attractive partner, etc. So we know that for these young people, um, you know, body image concerns are likely to still be an issue for them. So therefore, we are developing a body image program that's based on comics. Um, so slightly different, but similar to some of the other kind of micro intervention type interventions um, that we've been developing in our in our in our broader team. And these comics are based on an existing series, which is called Adiful. Now, Adiful is a TV series um, which was broadcast in India a few years ago, and it was conceptualized by UNICEF and BBC Media Action. And the series is based on three teen detectives who solve different cases related to issues which are salient in India, such as gender stereotyping, discrimination, um, gender-based sexual harassment, early marriage, etc., etc. And so the whole thing is they use these engaging characters um, and they tackle these serious issues by, um, you know, by using entertainment. And findings have um, suggested that um, these series have been effective um, at kind of inspiring young people, um, you know, empowering young girls. Um, encouraging boys to consider gender equality, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and so this suggests that Adiful um, and these comments could be could be a potential avenue for reaching young people about body image issues. Um, so therefore, uh, we are working with UNICEF to develop six different comics based on the Adiful gang, um, who will be tackling issues related to body image and appearance in their um, their fictional town called Badlipur. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Helena. We're going to have to have a whole other podcast episode, I'm sure, to, to really delve into the comics. But Fahin, I wonder for now, if you could maybe just give us a flavour of one of the storylines of the comics, what happens with these detectives? Yeah, sure, Nadia. 
I think sticking to our theme and discussions around media and the influence of movies, um, I'll tell you about one of the comics where we tackle this. Um, in this comic, we have an actress who comes to the small town of Badlipur and she's kidnapped by these two gundas or goons. And so Adhaf will then go on a rescue mission to try and save her. But when they get there, they think that that's not the actress because she doesn't look like anything in her movies. Um, and so then that starts a conversation amongst them and their friend who's a big fan of the actress, how and why she looks so different because of the makeup, the extensions. And then we have a conversation in the comics about what goes on behind the camera and after the editing process. Um, and so we kind of aim to end that comic with a message on media messages and comparisons and how what we see in the media is very different from what is the reality behind it but through a kind of a really fun, exciting adventure that hopefully the kids can relate, well, if not relate to, then be engaged in and learn something from. Brilliant. That sounds, that sounds incredible. Um, and I can't wait to hear more about that particular project at another time. Um, so, I mean, again, as I said, I could speak to all of you for hours. This has been so informative and interesting, but I know people have evening plans over in India and, and other bits and pieces that you need to get on with so I want to say a huge thank you but before we end uh, as is tradition on the podcast we like to talk about cake we normally do this in the context of our car coffee morning but as that we're all virtual at the moment what I would like is us to go around and just share what your favorite cake is so Hemel if we can start with you what's your favorite cake I would say that uh, cheesecake would be my favorite cake, <laughs> but it has to be made well. Um, I would like to uh, ask Manvi to talk next. Okay. So um, basically, I won't discriminate. I just love cake and any cake. Um, um, so frosting on the cake is, is the real deal, if I'm allowed to say that. Ruchika. Um, any way truthful. Um, I love dark chocolate, so truffle is my favorite. Megha, Megha Satani. Thanks. Okay. Uh, definitely um, something like a chocolate mousse. Uh, don't like the bready part. Definitely has to be really smooth and soft. Yeah, that. I think my favorite is banana walnut cake. Very different from the usual, but I, I love it, especially if it's freshly baked and I could just get my hands on a slice. Okay, over to Farheen. Thanks, Mega. I think, I don't, this is controversial, so I don't know if this counts as a cake, but my favorite are brownies. And I know this is maybe not a cake, but like fudgy brownies and just dark chocolate would be ideal. Passing over to Helena. So this isn't a cake, so again, this is controversial, but I would say my favorite dessert slash cake is sticky toffee pudding. Um, however, I did try something the other day that Fahin made and kindly brought over to me. And what was it called, Fahin? And could you describe it? Because um, that was delicious. It was a basin laddu, which I made for Diwali. Um, and it's for everyone who doesn't know, for the listeners, it's made of gram flour and you kind of just roast it for ages with a lot of ghee and sugar. And it's delicious. I'm glad you liked Helena. It was so, so good. So, so good. Um, right, I cheated there. That was naughty. Um, I'll pass over to Kirsty. Um, my favourite cake is carrot cake. 
Brilliant. And I think we're done. It was all just so brilliant. And I just enjoyed listening to you all so much. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. us. It was great Thank to be you. part of it. Thank you. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you, everyone. Come on. Brilliant. Well, thank you again all so much. It's been really enjoyable and I know our listeners are going to love it. It was so great to have and speak to all of you. That was so interesting. And like we kind of touched on before the interview took place, there's lots of great discussion points to tease out there. But one thing I really wanted to highlight is how it's so lovely to have such a large collaborative group of people that come from different yeah, experiences and expertise. It's really cool that you have that. Yeah, and so nice to have everyone talking together on the same episode. It's I, I wonder if we should do that more. And as you say, there were so many different avenues. It was really hard to, to have that conversation in a way because there were so many different rabbit holes I wanted us to, to go down, but then was kind of conscious of everyone's time. And it was the evening for our colleagues in India. So it just means that we have things to follow up on. That's all. Then the the other thing to say is that the the team have been working so hard this year in terms of getting their papers out and their publications out. So we can also link and signpost to some of those. So some of the measures validations papers have been published this year and there's lots more in the works. So keep your eye out for those, but we'll link to the ones that are already out in our show notes. Sounds good. And to wrap us up for the podcast for 2020, a uh, big thank you to our guests for this episode. And then a big thank you to you, our audience, for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. So until next time, we will see you on the other side in 2021. See you on the other side, Nadia.